there. Today we begin in earnest our study on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, uh, kiddos, you are dismissed. Yeah, kiddos, y'all can go upstairs. I think Dustin and Megan have you today. Congratulations to Dustin and Megan. Uh, on a, on a little bit of a, a short note, for those of you who don't know, there were some pretty harrowing stories of, of this week and, um, and of, of weather and stuff like that. So I know Megan was trapped in a bus for like six or eight hours. Is that right? Like long time? Seven? Eight? Yeah, I know. Uh, let's see, the Valdezes had some scary stuff going on in front of their house. And so you can ask them for stories of that later. But uh, ultimately, the Lord provided and saved in a lot of like very physical, tangible ways. So, so thankful for that. So um, Sermon on the Mount, we're, today we're going to begin the Beatitudes. Uh, there are a lot of guys who, when they start preaching the Beatitudes, they just take one at a time and they will preach through them. There's eight or nine Beatitudes, kind of depending on how you want to look at it. And uh, so we'll do like a nine, 10 week series on it. And I was going to try and do it in two. And I got into writing this sermon and I got my first two points done on the first two Beatitudes. And I realized I had a whole sermon. So we were either going to be here for an hour and a half if I was going to preach four of them today. So I just paused. Good news is I got most of my sermon for next week already handled as well. Uh, But today we're just going to, we're just going to work through this. I don't think we're in any rush. Hopefully nobody's going anywhere. Well, the the sermon will be our normal sermon length, but over time we'll take our time to kind of walk through this. So uh, Matthew chapter five is where we're going to be. We're going to study the first uh, first two Beatitudes today. But before we do that, before we jump into that, I want to uh, clarify something from last week. So last week, if you weren't here, we did just a Sermon on the Mount overview. And how do we approach this text? There's a lot of different perspectives on it. What do we think about this? And uh, it was brought to my attention and slash I kind of realized I didn't really summarize what we do with this kind of in a succinct way. So, so before, we, before we walk into it, I think we better have a summary of our approach towards it and then uh, we'll have our kind of our presuppositions laid out and then we'll be able to, to understand what we're doing. So um, the first thing that, that I want to make clear is that the Sermon on the Mount is for Christ followers. It is for the people who have claimed Christ as Lord over their life. So if if Christ is not Lord over your life, then I'm glad you're here. This is good info. It's good content. But but to begin to apply this and live this out is actually impossible outside of Jesus. So that's who it's for. The second thing is is since it's for his followers, uh, we're going to walk into this with the belief that it is for us today. It's not for us in the future, it's for us to to believe and to live out now. And because it's for us to believe and live out now, Jesus gave it to his followers with the expectation that they would do it. We're going to walk into it with the expectation that as we begin to study and submit to and depend upon the word of God, that we will be changed into the image of God. So as we see today, as we're going to see today, there's some promises in the Beatitudes that have real, tangible, applicable benefits to us, but ultimately they're fulfilled when Christ returns. So so the Beatitudes are for us now. We're going to expect that God would change us as we submit to and obey these things now, Uh, and and we're going to see that it affects us today, but ultimately, ultimately the real fulfillment comes when Christ returns. So it hasn't already, but not yet into that. So all right, that's our presuppositions. Let's, let's jump into the text. I'm gonna go ahead and read all 12 verses uh, of, of the first 12 verses of Matthew 5. Um, and then uh, I'll pray and we'll walk into this, all right? So Matthew chapter five, starting verse one. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, 
for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Merciful, gracious, kind, good Jesus. This morning you have given us an incredible passage to study that shows us exactly who you are. This shows us the character attributes that you embody, and it shows us who we are. So Spirit of God, this morning, we ask through the preaching of your word and through your mercy and grace that you would give us a glimpse into the depths of our brokenness, that you would help us to see how unable we are to do these things outside of you. And then Lord, would you mercifully show us the extravagant and gracious love that you have for us. Jesus, today I ask that you would change us, that you would mold us and that you would shape us just a little bit more into the person of Jesus. Help us to walk out of here today, God, with a conviction of spirit and help us to walk out of here with a complete and utter dependence and submission to you. Father, today grow your kingdom in our hearts, grow your kingdom in our church, grow your kingdom in our community for your glory and for our good. We ask this in Jesus' holy name, amen. All right. I have two points for us today, kind of, uh, kind of. Um, the second point really breaks down uh, into all of the Beatitudes. So that's like nine points. So basically, my second point is going to be our point for the next two or three sermons, however long it takes us to get through the Beatitudes. Uh, so uh, all of these points, all of these things um, boil down to one thing. If, if you were to summarize the Beatitudes, what is, what is Jesus teaching his disciples? I think it's this. It's that a truly blessed life is found in submission to and dependence on the king. A truly blessed life is found in submission to and dependence on the king. I'm gonna shed a layer, I'm getting a little hot up here. Ooh, no I'm not, that's gonna catch my microphone. Um, the, so, in order to break this down, the first point, the first thing we're gonna see is blessed. Blessed, there's one word that unites all, all of these beatitudes, right? It's at the very beginning of every one, blessed. What does that mean? So we're gonna swim in that. Uh, but then the second thing we're gonna look at is, is the second overarching point we have is life under the king. And when we look at life under the king, that's where we're gonna examine each one of these character attributes that describe the person who submits to and depends upon the king. So that's it. It's blessed and then life under the king and life under the king has a bunch of subpoints that'll carry us forward. So the first one, blessed. Blessed, what does it mean to be blessed? Anybody, anybody got an idea what blessed is? Maybe your translation says happy. Somebody got a translation that says happy? Happy are those, some, some people have that. Um, as I've done my homework, I totally understand why it has been translated that way. And in a certain sense, the word happy is a correct understanding of what blessed means. Uh, but if you've been around here, you've probably heard me say before that happiness is based off our happenings, right? It, it's based off of a subjective experience around us. And that is not what the Beatitudes is talking about. 
Um, it is not based off a set of feelings based off of our circumstances. You can look at them and you can know really quickly that what Jesus is talking about is, isn't about good circumstances or you being happy, right? Blessed are the uh, poor in spirit, right? Happy are those who are sad. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are those who are persecuted. Those two things on a circumstance level don't seem to fit together. So, so happy is not, it, it, while I understand that translation is probably not the best fit for how we understand the word to be. So if happy doesn't mean blessed, what then does it mean? Well, one scholar described it this way. He said, rather than happiness in its mundane sense, it refers to the deep inner joy of those who have long awaited the salvation promised by God and who now begin to experience its fulfillment. So summarize that. Blessed. What is blessed or happy as some translate it mean? It means this. It means a deep sense of inner joy for those because salvation has come. A deep sense of inner joy because salvation has come. That's what it means to be blessed. Well, salvation from what? Well, that's what the Beatitudes really unpack for us. But there's something before we begin to unpack the Beatitudes that we also need to make note of about this word blessed, and that's the location of it. Notice that blessed, the blessings that, that Jesus gives come before the commands of Jesus. You look at the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, verses chapter five, verse 13, all the way through chapter seven, that that's full of things that a disciple does. It's a life of obedience. But the blessing that God declares is on the front end. So, so think back to, to the Israelites, right? God delivered them out of Egypt and then he gave them the law. It wasn't, he gave them the law and then said, I will deliver you if you keep this. So, so in order for us to really have a complete understanding of what's going on here is we have to remember, we have to understand that Salvation is given, God declares blessing before he gives you a call of obedience to follow. So that leads us to a question. And that question is, is are you blessed? Has God called you? Has he claimed his lordship over your life? Is he your king? So blessing comes before call. But the second thing that's worth noticing, or the third thing that's worth noting about this word, is that it's not an observation. Jesus isn't saying, man, if you're poor in spirit, then you'll be blessed. No, what Jesus is declaring is you are blessed. He is calling you this. What is happening here is we are made his people, then we follow in obedience. God has called us, redeemed us, and made us his own, and then he is objectively, objectively he calls us blessed, and then we carry out what he has called us to do. So, are you blessed? Are you his own? Well, how do you know? How do you know if you're blessed? Well, that's what the rest of the Beatitudes are for. That brings us to our second point, and that's life under the king. Life under the king. Jesus shows us in these verses what the blessed man looks at. First, looks like. First, he tells us in verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The blessed man is satisfied in being poor. Now, hold on a minute. I don't know about you, but the idea of being poor and being blessed don't seem to fit together. Is that what Jesus is calling people to? Is he calling them to a life of economic destitution? Is that even the right phrase? People just to be poor. You know, you guys should all give your money to the church and be poor. Then you will be blessed. Is that, is that what Jesus is doing? 
There's actually a group of people that would look at Luke chapter six, where the, Luke records the Beatitudes, and Jesus says, blessed are the poor, and they would say, yeah, what Jesus is calling his followers to is a life of poorness, and they've built a whole theology around this. As a matter of fact, that's why there's a lot of monks who believe that, man, we should leave everything that the world has, and we should just become e- economically destitute. However, when we look at all of verse three, and we look at Luke chapter six in its context, and we look at the rest of the New Testament, it becomes really clear that Jesus isn't calling for empty bank accounts. Now, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. So, so what does that mean then? All right, we, what, is, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, that word poor does mean destitute. It does mean beggarly. So, so think about in Old Testament times, uh, if uh, you were, I don't know, crippled, um, what, what would you do in order to try and have money or to eat. You couldn't call Aflac, right? You didn't have that back then. So, so what, what would you do? You would sit at the edge, edge of the city gate and alms for the poor, right? I think, of, uh, I think of that old cartoon Robin Hood movie, alms for the poor. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. It's my favorite movie of all time. Uh, alms for the poor, right? You, you would be entirely dependent upon somebody to give you food or money, or help you get to a place where you could get around or have food or money. So, so that is what it means to be poor. Now, for us, we can, I, think, I think we can pretty well wrap our mind around poorness, right? That's, that's not hard for us to, to grasp. But to be poor in spirit, to be poor in spirit is different. Um, to be poor in spirit then describes someone who knows in their spirit that, as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, that when they come face to face with the living God, they have nothing to offer. They are spiritually destitute and they must rely entirely on the grace of God for salvation. John Piper describes this person like this. He says, that person has a sense of powerlessness in ourselves. It is a sense of spiritual bankruptcy and helplessness before God. It is a sense of moral uncleanness before God. It is a sense of personal unworthiness before God. It is a sense that if there is to be any life or joy or usefulness, it will have to be all of God and all of grace. And he then goes on to say, the reason I say that is a sense of powerlessness and a sense of bankruptcy and a sense of uncleanliness and a sense of unworthiness is that objectively speaking, all of us are poor in spirit. Everybody, whether they sense it or not, is powerless without God and bankrupt and helpless and unclean and unworthy before God. But not everyone is blessed. Let me show you this real quick. If you've got your uh, bulletin, take it out. If you've got a journal, however you're taking notes, whatever you got. Take that, put it in front of you, and over on the left side of the page, I want you to number one, two, three, four, five. Okay? One, two, three, four, five. Now, I'm gonna give you 10 seconds really quick, to write down what five things you bring to the kingdom of God. What are your best things you got? All right? You got 10 seconds. Write down the top five things that when you come face to face with God, you have to offer him. God, you're blessed to have me on your team because I got these five things. I've rambled long enough. Maybe you sit down and you write, I've got talent. I'm a really good singer. I can play. I can sing. I can teach, I can preach, I can care, I can, I can cook, I can lead. Maybe you can write down those things and you can say, God, you're blessed to have me because I can do all these things. But at the end of the day, who gave you that ability? 
All right, you might say, I'm, I'm a self-taught cook, self-taught piano player, self-taught preacher, teacher, whatever, right? I did this on my, my own. What about those ingredients to cook with? What about that piano to play with? What about the circumstances and opportunities for you to lead? What about the people to serve and care for? Did you come up with any of that? No. Maybe you thought, you know what? You know what I can bring to the kingdom? I, I can bring cash, right? I, I can give my money. I can bless God because I'm rich. Does really the creator of the universe need your money for anything? No. And how did you earn that money? Who gave you that job? Who established that business? Who has sustained it? Who brought you the customers? My point is in all of this, when it comes to the kingdom of God, there is nothing positive that we have to offer. It is all his gift. You know what you do bring? You know what you do bring? God's, God's given you a gift. He's given you ability. He's given you a talent. And you said, you know, I think of the parable of the talents, right? Uh, and God gave to one guy and he took it and he invested it and he grew the kingdom. And he gave it to another guy and he grew the kingdom. And he gave it to another guy and that guy buried it and hid it. And it's like, man, I'm afraid that God is a, is a mean judge. And if I, if I don't protect his money, he'll come after me. If I lose it, I'll be in big trouble. God's given you something. And you might come back to God and you might say, man, Lord, I, I took this gift that you have given me and I invested it in the kingdom and I tried to grow it. I, I tried to live for your kingdom. But at the end of the day, in every circumstance of the gift that God has given you, have you used those gifts solely for the kingdom purpose? Or have you used them for your own good and to build a little bit of your own kingdom here and now? Have you ever been selfish with the gifts that he's given you. You see, what you and I have done as we have taken the good things that God has given and we've tarnished them. We've abused and we've misused. We've even made good things into God things. In the book of Revelation, chapter three, Jesus has a word for the church at Laodicea. Church at Laodicea says, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing. But do you know what Jesus, how Jesus describes that? Revelation chapter 3, verse 15. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that who are you? You are wretched. You are pitiable, you are poor, blind, and naked. How does Jesus describe the self-fulfilled man? Wretched, pitiable, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. You are destitute, beggarly. Church, we have nothing to bring God. If God, if you don't do it, we have no hope. If he doesn't come through and save us from ourselves, we're damned. To be poor in spirit, then, is to recognize our complete inability to save ourselves. It is to recognize, like the tax collector in Luke chapter 18. Remember, there's a story Jesus tells of, of a tax collector and a Pharisee, and they both come to pray, and the Pharisee says, man, look at me, for I give alms, right? I give to the church, and I'm a good guy, and I keep the law, and I know the word of God, and I obey, and I do all these things right. And then there's a tax collector over on the side, and what does he say? doesn't even pick up his head, but he beats his chest and says, have mercy on me, oh God. That's what it means 
to be poor in spirit. So if that's what it means, it, but then is also to live in a way, it's to recognize that's who we are, but it's also to live in a way that is completely dependent upon him. So, so Jesus was kind enough to model for us what poor in spirit actually looks like. Now, think about Jesus for a minute. Jesus who, though he was God, considered equality with God not a thing to be grasped, right? Instead, he made himself into the form of a servant. Jesus became like us. Jesus being God, he had all of his attributes. He had all of God's power. He had all of God's ability. But what does Jesus continually say? Not my will, but yours. Jesus continually submitted to the Father. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of times in Jesus when the crowds would be following him and they would say, man, Jesus, we want you to be our king. We want you to be our ruler. Jesus, we're gonna take you by force and we're gonna force you to be the ruler. You know what Jesus would do in that moment? He would withdraw from the crowds and he would begin to go and pray. Now, if anybody could walk on their own in complete obedience and submission to God, it was Jesus, right? Why in the world would he go pray? I mean, he is God. Why does he need to go commune with the Father? Jesus did this because he submitted to and he depended upon the Father. He withdrew, he would go pray so that he would commune with the Father to enable his obedience to the Father. So church, when we look at this phrase, poor in spirit, to have a right understanding of ourselves, the question that we have to ask, and we'll ask this of every one of these, is does this describe you? Are you poor in spirit? Do you understand yourself to be that way? If not, how, how do we become poor in spirit? What, what's the, okay, I, I get it. We should be poor in spirit. But, but how do I actually get there? I think there's two ways in which we become poor in spirit. The first is this. Look at yourself. Just stop for a minute and take a real survey of who you are. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. The way to rise in the kingdom is to sink into ourselves. When you take a real look at that list of five things that you wrote down to bring to God, do you know what you begin to do? You begin to sing that old hymn, Rock of Ages, which says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling, naked, come to thee for dress, helpless, I look to thee for grace, foul, I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. That's how you begin to become poor in spirit as you take a real evaluation of who you are. And then the second thing you do is you run to the Savior. What does Jesus say in Revelation to the church in Laodicea? He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. You see, Jesus, even though this church has rebelled against him, has been lukewarm, not hot or cold, they've just been who they are, right? What does he say? Man, he stands there with arms wide open. And he says, if you will open the door, I will come in and I will eat with you. I will fellowship with you. I will give you my approval. 
So church, we, we run to Jesus as an example for our faith, but most importantly, we look to him as our savior. We recognize that even in our naked and helpless and foul state, Jesus comes to us because of his mercy and grace and he declares us blessed. Behold, he stands at the door and knock. Will you open it? What happens when you do? What happens when you open the door? You behold Jesus. You encounter the king of kings. You, you sit with the one who has the kingdom. Now, if you'll look in verse, back to chapter three, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You'll notice that that is a present active promise. Theirs is. And, but in all the rest of the Beatitudes, uh, it's a future tense. For they shall be comforted. For they shall inherit the earth. For they shall be satisfied. Right? This one and the last one has a present tense promise. You see, this proves this idea of already but not yet. When you come to Jesus, poor in spirit, what you are really doing is you are submitting to and depending on him. And when that happens, do you know what, what he is doing? He is establishing his kingdom in your heart. He is establishing his rule now. He is shaping you now. So now what is our call? Our call, our call every day is to walk poor in spirit. Because when we do that, when we come needless, helpless, saying, God, help me. You know what he begins to do? He begins to, by the power of his spirit, enable us to begin to look and act and believe and behave more like him. I love what Lloyd-Jones had to say about this. He said, you can't be filled with the spirit till you recognize that you are poor in spirit. When you come face to face with God, poor in spirit, he gives you mercifully his spirit to rule and reign over you, to shape you now into the image of Jesus. We get to experience that now. We get to experience a taste of his kingdom, a, case, a taste of his lordship over our hearts and minds today. But ultimately, we await on that kingdom to come. So that's the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What's the second element of life under the king? Well, it's comfort and mourning. Verse four, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, the second element is really built on the first, all right? You, and that's one of the things that I want us to see as time goes on, as we look at all of these. You can't take the Beatitudes and separate them, right? We don't walk up to them and go, you know what? For 2024 this year, I want to be better in being merciful. Blessed are the merciful. I just want to grow in mercy this year. I'm going to be, I'm going to be a better, a mercy giver, right? No. The Beatitudes build one upon the other. Kind of like the fruit of the spirit. It's, it's one fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, right? Those are all tied together. It's the same thing with the Beatitudes. They all fit together. They build one upon another. So when you understand your position before God is to be poor in spirit, what is the natural and right response? You mourn. Well, what does mourning mean? What does it mean to mourn? Well, the word Jesus used here is referred, uh, often referred to the deep grief that one felt after the death of a dearly loved family member or friend. This past week was my dad's birthday, and his mom, my grandmother, gave to him uh, some pictures of him and his dad when, uh, when my dad was a little kid, and they went on a fishing trip. And it reminded me of all the times my granddad took me fishing. Uh, and then it also reminded me of standing at my granddad's casket. And looking in, and I can close my eyes, and I can remember seeing his body, see the jacket that he was wearing, and, and the hat, see his cowboy hat. I can remember walking over to the front row of the church and weeping. 
that the man who taught me to fly fish was gone. I still get sad. The guy who took me and my siblings on a lot of trips up to the mountains. It's done. There's been no more, no more watermelon gardens in his corrals to ride my bike over to and sit down and eat with. Even today, it makes me mourn. You know, you know what mourning is. You know what it's like to lose loved ones. The term that Jesus uses here isn't describing some sort of superficial regret, but an intense sense of remorse. But remorse over what? What are we supposed to mourn? We've seen poor in spirit. We've seen our own sinfulness and ineptitude. So obviously we mourn those things. As John Stott would say, it's one thing to be spiritually poor and acknowledge it. It's another thing to grieve and mourn over it. Church, what I am afraid about with us is that we will all sit in here and say, yeah, I got nothing to offer God. That's easy for, that's easy for me to, to mentally assent to that. I believe that. But does that actually break your heart? Does that actually force you to your knees in weeping? We read Isaiah 61 at the beginning of the service because verse four of chapter five of Matthew actually refers back to that. You see the people in Isaiah were mourning and weeping because of the sin of Israel and the devastation that it has caused. Church, do you mourn over the devastation of your sin? Do you see the ramifications of it? How it ruins those things around you, how it affects your relationships? When was the last time you cried with the psalmist in Psalm 119, 136? My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Stott would go on to say, the truth is, is that there are such things as Christian tears and too few of us ever weep them. Church, I'm afraid that we see sin as a problem. I'm afraid that we see sin as unfortunate but I'm also afraid that we see it as just part of the world we live in. So we become numb to it. Think about the war in Ukraine, right? Was that two years ago? We all freaked out. Oh man, Russia's invading Ukraine. Is this the next World War III? But he prayed for Ukraine, pray for Ukraine. See an article once a week maybe about it. When was the last time you prayed for Ukraine? What, what about Israel, right? October. And Israel was invaded. Oh, the end times are coming. Everybody be ready. Jesus is going to return. Do we still even think about that? Psalm 40, verse 12 says this, For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. When was the last time your heart failed you because of the gravity of your sin. Maybe a different way to look at this particular beatitude, and maybe we should look at all the beatitudes this way, is to ask the question, what happens if we don't mourn sin? What happens? I'd love to pull the whiteboard up here and pull the crowd, right? What happens if you don't mourn your sin? Exegetically, looking back at this text, I think that it means that we're not blessed. I think that it means that we won't find that satisfied, joyful, content life 
that we're all chasing after. Because if we don't mourn sin, do you know what we tend to do? We get comfortable with it. We get comfortable with it, and then we end up looking to it to bring us comfort and to bring us satisfaction. And when you look towards sin for satisfaction, what happens? You die. What happens when we do mourn sin? What happens when it does break our hearts and make us weep? What happens when we hate it? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Church, we're comforted. When you hate sin, you're comforted by what? You're comforted by the truth that all of that sin, all of that inability, all of that brokenness has been paid for on the cross. You see, Jesus took our brokenness with him to the cross and he left it there. And when we approach him poor in spirit, mourning over our sin, do you know what he gives us? He gives us righteousness. It's a righteousness that he earned, not one that we earned. And now we can be comforted by our new identity as chosen, as approved, and as adopted into the family of God. The father is now no longer this scary judge, but he is a merciful king to whom we can cry, Abba. And then he gives us his spirit, who in John 14, the Greek word is paraclete, which is translated as advocate or helper or comforter. You see, the spirit through the son now fulfills Isaiah 61. We read this at the beginning. I hope you kept a, uh, your, a marker in there. Flip back to Isaiah 61 with me for just a second. I'm not gonna read this whole passage again, but I, but I am gonna kind of look through here and just pick some words. And I think having it in front of you will help you see what the spirit through the son does. What does the spirit do? The spirit brings good news. That's how he comforts us. The spirit binds up broken hearts. The spirit proclaims liberty. He sets free from prison, the prison of sin and death. What does the spirit do? He comforts those who mourn. Instead of sitting in ashes in repentance, what does he do? He gives them a beautiful headdress. No longer do we mourn, but we have an oil of gladness because of the spirit. No longer do we have a faint spirit, but we have a garment of praise Now, how are we seen? How do we identify ourselves? We see ourselves as oaks of righteousness that the Lord has planted, that he may be glorified. It's not by what we do, it's by what he does. We see him, how does he see us? Now, what do we are? Verse six of Isaiah, we are now ministers, right? He has made us a kingdom of priests, ministers of reconciliation. Verse seven, we are no longer, dishonor is no longer our lot. Shame is not our portion. What do do we have now? Oh, we have an everlasting joy. We greatly rejoice in the Lord. Verse 10, why? Because he has clothed us with garments of salvation. He has covered us in robes of righteousness. Is this because of the things that we have done? No, we just come to the Lord poor in spirit. It's only because of his kindness, his mercy, that we have those things. And the comforter, tells us this, and he reminds us of who we are in Christ as we mourn our sin. Church, when we mourn over our sin, we experience comfort now because we have the Spirit of God, the Comforter, with us now. But ultimately, ultimately, what does this passage call us towards? It calls us to Revelation chapter 7, verse 17. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
Can you imagine the creator of the universe walking up and holding you in the face as you weep over your sin, wiping your tears away, saying, I have come to make all things new. That's what we look forward to. So church, as we wrap up the first two Beatitudes and probably all of the rest, question that we have to ask ourselves is this. Do these characteristics describe you? Are you poor in spirit? Have you recognized your inability to find true satisfaction and joy in the things of this world? Have you come face to face with the living God and recognize that you have nothing to offer him in and of yourself except for all of the things that you have misused and abused, your inability your beggar, beggarliness, your destituteness, does that cause you to mourn? Do you weep over your sin? Do you weep over the sin that exists in our church? Do you weep over the sin that exists in our community or in our state or in our nation? When was the last time it caused you to cry? Churches, we conclude I want to challenge you to do four things. They're on the screen. I just finished reading a book on prayer. Our goal as we have walked into this is to become kingdom people, people who embody these characteristics, the characteristics of Jesus as being poor in spirit, of mourning over sin, right? Next week, we'll get through as many as we can get through. Hopefully, hopefully we'll get through three next week's my goal. But looking now, poor in spirit is mourning. As we begin to try and pursue that, what are some steps we can take? I listened to this book on prayer, and in this, this author had four R's that he observed every day. Now, I'm, I'm trying to do this myself, okay? Um, the goal of this is for you to do this every day at the end of the day. Maybe while you're standing there brushing your teeth, maybe it's when you lay your head down and hit the pillow. If you're like me, you don't get past the first one because you fall asleep, right? What do you do? I want you to stop, and I want you to reflect. I want you to think about every moment from the time the alarm went off. Think about every conversation you've had, every business dealing you've dealt with, every kid you've parented, every piece of laundry you've folded, all of it, right? Reflect across your entire day. It's bringing back the idea of remembering, right? And as you reflect, I want you to look inward and I want you to see what you have been deriving your comfort and your satisfaction and your joy from. It may be a good thing and it may be a wicked thing. And as you look at every conversation you've had and every dealing you've done, you repent. You mourn over your sin and you ask God to forgive you. But you don't just sit there weeping. You then turn and rejoice because you have a comforter and you have a spirit and you have one who made all things new and all things right. And you know he's gonna come again. And so you rejoice in the good things that he has done and that he is doing. So we reflect, we repent, we rejoice, and then what do we do? We reset. We stop and we say, God, help me. Even as I lay my head down to sleep tonight, to walk forward tomorrow in the truth of who you have called me and created me to be. So that's your practical application for this week. Last week it was to read through the Sermon on the Mount every day of the week. This week it is to do this. Reflect, repent, rejoice, and reset. And ask God to work in you. Church, here's the thing. The promises of the beatitude 
our future that will come in fullness when he returns, but we can't experience them now. And that's what these things lead us towards. So, church, as you do this, what you're doing is you're finding your dependence on him. You are submitting to him. And when you do that, do you know what you're gonna find? When you submit to and depend on the king, what do you get? Joy, contentment, blessedness. That's what we all want. May Jesus through his spirit, shape us to have these characteristics. Amen? Church, let's pray. Merciful, gracious, kind Father, forgive us. Forgive us for trusting in ourselves. Forgive us for looking inward to satisfy you to bring joy. Forgive us for looking outward for things of this world to bring us joy and contentment when they never were meant to do so. God, may we recognize exactly how unable, how inept we are. God, may it grow in us a poorness in spirit, not one that mopes around, but God, one that humbly submits to and depends upon the King. And God, as we see our brokenness, oh Jesus, may we weep for the things that you weep for. May, it, may our sin, may the sin of our church, the sin of our community, may it break our hearts and God, may it press us into you. And Jesus, as that happens, Spirit of God, be our comforter. May we know your presence. May we know your warm embrace. May we know well done, good and faithful servant because of the cross. Jesus, you are worthy of praise. We run to the cross today. Naked, naked, helpless, vile, foul, that's who we are, asking you for help and gratefully rejoicing that you are the God who gives it. Jesus, you're worthy of our praise. We ask all of this in your name, amen. Stand and sing, church.